Dylan and I discuss our tech leader crushes on this technology edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Thursday, April 21st, 2016, and joining me in studio is the snappily dressed Mr. Dylan Lewis. Uh, Dylan, it's a Thursday. Yeah. We're in here. Yeah, it's a little Talking odd. tech. I know. I was. I, I thought you actually said the date wrong. At no. First, you know, like, because we've, we've no. done some times where we've pre-taped and you've caught yourself, you're like, ah, oh, no, I have to say, no. you know, whatever Friday's date is. But no, we have flipped it up. We wanted to allow Tyler Crow to hang out with a friend in town. It's absurd. So we agreed to switch the Thursday energy show and the Friday tech show just this once. Tyler, if you're listening, you got a lot of moxie. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, we're shaking it up a little bit today, but I'm actually really excited. Um, I don't have much in the way of notes. I don't think you do either. No. Just got some bullet points. Um, we're going to talk uh, about two tech leaders that we follow closely to see what they're up to, what we can learn from them, and more importantly, to just kind of glean what they think about the future of investing in technology. Um, Dylan, since you're better dressed than me today... You got the snappy shoes on, I think. Yeah, we had a um, meeting with one of our distribution partners for Full.com, yeah. so I had to dress a little bit nicer than I usually do for the office. Um, you have the honors to start us off. Oh, thank um, you. Who are you talking about? I'm going to be talking about Mark Andreessen. Um, and, you know, as you kind of prefaced here, these are people that we uh, admire as investors. They're people that are incredibly innovative in the tech space, and they're really fun to follow. Uh, they generally tend to. Um, be ahead of the investing curve on you know some of the major trends. So uh, that's why we're going to profile them today. Awesome. Uh, uh, so who is uh, Mark Anderson, and uh, why is he awesome? So quick bullet point resume for him. Um, so he co-authored Mosaic, which was one of the early internet browsers, and basically got ported over into Netscape, which I'm sure most early internet users were pretty familiar with. Uh, Netscape, of course, went on to be bought by AOL. Um, and destroyed by Microsoft and Internet Explorer. Yes, and the, the, <laughs> the infamous uh, in, uh, the browser browser wars. It wasn't even a war. It was we're going to block your browser on all of our operating systems. Have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> or I mean, we're going to heavily promote our own browser. I suppose I should be more accurate by saying. But anyway, makes it tough to compete. Yeah. Uh, and then he later went on to launch uh, the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz with his friend uh, Ben Horowitz in 2009. They went from having about $300 million in um, capitalization to around $4 billion AUM in six years. Is that, by any chance, mostly due to capital appreciation? I'm sure there's some capital appreciation. I think it's also uh, people voting with their dollars and realizing that they're doing one heck of a job and they want to get money with them. Um, he has been, and his firm has been, um, an early investor in Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Oculus, Lyft, Airbnb, and Skype, just to name a few. And he currently sits on the board of Facebook, eBay, HP Enterprise, as well as a couple other smaller names. Oh my gosh, I just realized this was the guy that got the big payday when Microsoft bought Skype. Yep. That just clicked for me. All right, yeah. cool. He's had a couple of big paydays. Yeah. But that was, well, that I, was, yeah, you're listing all these things. What's Airbnb valued at? Like 20 or $30 billion right now? Insane like amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things I wanted to do with him was profile something investors can learn. Uh, from what he's done in the past, just a track record, and kind of an example of signals to pick up on in the marketplace. And so, uh, Anderson Horowitz was an early investor in Groupon. Um, a few months before their IPO, uh, the firm participated in this, this kind of odd funding round that they'd had, and uh, they contributed, I think it was $40 million to like just under $1 billion in total funding for that round. Uh, they had an inve- initial investment with a basis around like 784 a share. Okay. Like 
And this was back when, um, if my memory serves me correctly, Groupon was like the fastest growing company ever. Absolutely or, exploding. Yeah. And it was it was one of those cases where like the popularity that they were experiencing was outpacing the business development and like the all, the yeah. core fundamentals of like how are they going to make money and how is it all going to make sense and how is it yeah. going to be palatable, palatable to mainstream investors. I, I distinctly remember reading an article in like Forbes or something. This is when they're operating like a warehouse in Chicago or something, and it was like of their size, Groupon was like the fastest growing in terms of revenues businesses on record. It was <laughs> just blistering growth. So. Uh, he obviously saw that, and yes. <laughs> and, and he got in as many venture capitalists do. Um, but shortly after the sale, um, so basically, he, they wound up selling their shares uh, immediately right after the IPO. Well, immediately after the lockup period on those private equity shares expired, and they were able to sell. So you know, a couple months after the IPO, they were mm-hmm. able to liquidate their shares. And shortly after the sale, it was reported um, Mr. Andreessen was among several Groupon advisors who had urged uh, the firm not to go through with its IPO as planned, um, basically believing that they should pull the IPO. Uh, there's going to be a lot of intense scrutiny on the business. It's not a business that people are very used to seeing yet, and the metrics aren't ones that people are familiar with. They're going to face a lot of the skepticism that uh, a lot of internet companies do post dot com boom mm-hmm. and dot com bust, and so um, that's interesting. So if I'm reading what you just said correctly, um, they wanted Groupon to be able to show more cash flow. I mean, Wall, I, I, Wall Street financials. Yeah, Wall Street. That, that's what they wanted, and that's and Anderson just thought that Groupon wasn't there. Yeah, which is actually you know kind of counter in a lot of ways like typically you think about these vcs as cashing out as soon as they can because mm-hmm. um, you know they just want to get their money out they want to exit right but like this is a situation where he felt like the business should not have gone public yet right it's it's kind of odd little flip. yeah it's like you don't want your money yet like what do you yeah, yeah i guess uh, maybe he saw more potential there that they weren't realizing or mm-hmm. he was worried that um, an unfavorable market reaction would hurt his ability to exit mm-hmm. and so that's why he was pushing them against that um, but obviously, as an investor, when you see something like that happen, so they'd been public, I think, for about five or six months when they um, finally ca- when Anderson Horowitz cashed out. Um, you have to pump the brakes a little bit and you know kind of look at what is that signaling. This is someone who knows the tech space very well, someone who knows software companies incredibly well, and to no surprise, I mean, Groupon's down about sixty percent. Since they cashed out, unfortunately for Groupon and its shareholders, history has proven him right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I know some people might say, "Well, yeah, you know, he sold some of his personal Facebook shares. He has has a lot of personal Mm -hmm. Facebook shares um, in his portfolio in the in late 2015." And yes, that's true. But I think there are some differences here. Um, The stock had appreciated 175 percent on the public markets when he made that sale. You know, so wherever he bought in as a VC. You know he's doing even better than that. So he didn't totally liquidate his position. I think he sold about half of it. Um, and some of the stock that he owned in that deal was actually tied to uh, the Oculus acquisition. Oh, yeah. So yeah, because yeah. yeah, that was that was part of the financing for that deal. So not all of his Facebook shares were intentional shares, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, I mean, he still sits on the Facebook board. Yeah, he's not leaving or anything. Yeah. So um, I think that this Groupon example is just a really, really great example of. Um, signals that VCs can send to the market, and as an everyday investor, we don't have access to these these early round funding meetings and mm-hmm. you know what's going on behind closed doors. But when you see these kinds of things happening, you kind of have to 
question what's going on with some of these businesses. Right. Yeah, and it's almost like uh, – let me ask you a question. If you found out that he was selling all of his shares in Facebook, how nervous would you be about Facebook? I'd be a little nervous. You would be. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I totally understand him you know, wanting to sell some of them and just enjoy some of them. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd imagine that it was becoming an increasingly large percentage of his portfolio. So I was like, okay, diversification a little bit. Yeah. And, and for him, I mean, he takes a lot of small bets. Mm. And, you know, As he h- should. Him liquidating half his position in Facebook allows him to take very small positions in a whole bunch of VCs or in a whole bunch of VC placements that can then balloon up in growth. So so it makes sense for his investing style. Yeah. Uh, but there's a reason that he still has a stake there. Right. Um, and then with this focus on Andreessen, I think one of the things I also wanted to pivot to is just what is he looking at now? Right. Right. Which is actually what I'm super interested in. So. Yeah. Um, so he is very well known for this idea of software is eating the world. Um, it's actually the credo of Andreessen Horowitz. In a good way or a bad way? I th- he thinks it's a good way. Okay. I think, I think if you're like a legacy in like you know manufacturer or something like that, you might hate it. Okay. But um, uh, so it's the credo of Andreessen Horowitz. It's actually like their tagline on their site, um, and it shows in his investments. Um, if you want a full sense of his thinking, he actually wrote an essay with that as the uh, title: "Software is Eating the World." It's available on the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think it published cool. in 2011. Um, I'm not going to rehash the whole thing here, but I think one little snippet here gives you a very good sense of how he feels and how he invests. And that's, my own theory is that we're in the middle of a dramatic and broad technological and economic shift in which software companies are poised to take over large swaths of the economy. Then he goes on to say, over the next 10 years, I expect many more industries to be disrupted by software, with new world-beating Silicon Valley companies doing the disruption in more cases than not. Wow. And so... He goes on to itemize several different industries that are ripe for disruption, and they're not the ones that you always think of. You know, healthcare. with tech, healthcare, healthcare is one yeah. of them. I mean, like manufacturing is one. The financial services industry, which you know we see a little bit here at the Fool, of course. Yeah. Um, and so, are they going to replace us with software? Is <laughs> oh, that I hope not. Do myself a job. Um, so, so this is kind of his ideology, and he is he's very much a software work smart platform play mm-hmm. kind of investor. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting just to profile a couple of the most recent investments that Andreessen Horowitz has made. Yeah. Um, so obviously they make a lot of small bets, and you can't read too much into any single one. But I think again, this just this track record will illustrate what he's interested in. Uh, so January 2016, uh, the firm led uh, was it an 8.1 million uh, Series A round in Everlaw, which is a legal technology company. And basically, it is this cloud service that uh, law firms can use. It's for document storage. Um, search and accessibility, just making the discovery phase of the legal process mm-hmm. much easier, much less onerous. That's not a lot of money, by the way. You're, I mean, you're talking about making lots of small bets and yeah, yes. not to begrudge $8 million. Right. But yeah. But yeah, in the, in the grand scheme of you know, right. what they have under management. Right. Uh, more recently in March, the firm uh, led around for Branch.co, uh, which is a digital financial services uh, firm. And basically, they are taking mobile tech and bringing it to sub-Saharan Africa and helping people that would not have access to like, credit ratings or credit worthiness um, be able to take out loans. And so instead of saying, all right, well, this is your credit history and this is what you qualify for, they're using other data points to build up someone's credit history and their credit worthiness. And so um, this is a firm that is helping people that probably otherwise would go unbanked um, you know, have access to credit and loans and cool. be able to facilitate some of that stuff. And most recently, um, 
Andreessen Horowitz, they led around for uh, SkySafe, which is a startup that is developing drone disabling systems. And so that sounds like a great idea right now. Right. <laughs> and so uh, the idea here is, you know, if drones go rogue or if people are being nefarious. Or with you drones, could just you could just sell it to FedEx and UPS and they could use it on the Amazon drones that are totally coming. I'm right. Kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thought here is if drones are where people don't want them to be. Right. Um, they are going to be using sort of radio wave technology to override the drone's remote and take control of the aircraft and usher it out into an area that it, it should be. Um, Get it out to sea. Yeah. <laughs> and so what you see with all of these types of investments is they are their software plays, um, they are scalable, and they are working smarter, right? Yeah. Um, you, a lot of people are very big on drones, and rightfully so. I mean, it's something that was you know, poised to explode in a lot of ways. But he is not interested in the hardware side of drones. Right. He's, He's interested in the software because yeah. anybody can make the hardware. Right. And, you know, I mean, he, I think Andreessen Horowitz has um, invested in Jawbone, you know, the uh, the um, uh, wearable manufacturer. Mm-hmm. But uh, even that as a hardware play is still kind of a platform play because you have the, the health um, tracking and like the nudges and the, on, on the tracking side. So, uh, you're not seeing a lot of hardware stuff here. It's all stuff that's software. Right. Cool. All right. Well, before we dive into talking about Peter Thiel, uh, I wanted to point any listeners out there that are hungry for more foolish content to focus.fool.com, where all industry-focused listeners have access to a special discount on the Motley Fool Stock Advisor newsletter. The discount works out to $129 for a full two-year subscription. Uh, once again, the website is focus.fool.com. Uh, so, Dylan, thanks for sharing about uh, yeah. Mark Anderson. Uh, my guy, I, I'm at, when you were talking, I couldn't help but notice the scores of similarities between Mark and uh, the gentleman that I wanted to talk about, which is Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Um, not only does Peter Thiel have a net worth of $1.5 billion, um, but he's also a U.S.-ranked chess grandmaster. Wow. So, do not play him in chess. Sharp guy. Yeah. Well, no, and not only that, but it was really weird. Um, if you, our listeners, I highly recommend you one get his book Zero to One, which I'm going to discuss in a second. But also just go to YouTube and type in Peter Thiel. There's lots of great videos about him. You know, talking about business and startups and all that stuff. But there's also this really funny video of him walking around New York with Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster oh. from the '90s, and he's the Russian. He's just ringing any bell. Anyway. He's walking around New York just talking about politics and technology and stuff with Gary Kasparov walking around New York visiting chess clubs. That's pretty cool. It's really, really cool. Are they doing it as ringers or are they doing it like were these guys that are very good at chess? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they they were talking to, yeah, it was, it it, highly recommend you check it out. Um, I think it's called, the title is a weird title, but it's like Into the Night with Gary Kasparov and Peter Thiel. And they're just going around talking about life and stuff, but they're visiting these chess clubs in New York. Anyway. Um, So uh, Peter Thiel was born in West Germany in 1967. He found his way to the United States. I think they moved here here when he was like one. Um, But he attended Stanford University studying philosophy, and he received his JD from Stanford Law in 1992. Wow. So he's got a philosophy degree. He's a lawyer. He's a chess grandmaster. And and I'm guessing you're going to get to his tech credentials at some point. It gets even better from what I just said. Because obviously, if I just described this individual, you'd be like, wow, he's a really sharp guy, lawyer, all this stuff or whatever. He is a co-founder of PayPal. Mm -hmm. He's one of the the PayPal mafia. mafia. He's part of the mafia. In fact, I I found this great photo I, I meant to show you before we went on air. Um, it's all of them like playing poker and there's like scotch and stuff or whatever. And 
he's in the middle of the photo of the PayPal mafia. Yeah. So I, I'll show it to you later. Anyway, um, new Elon Musk from the PayPal days. Um, I, you know, in fact, I read the story one time where after they got the payday from selling PayPal, Musk brought uh, bought this uh, race car and Teal was driving with him and Musk wrecked it. Um, just <laughs> and he's like, you know what? I'm going to build a better one. Yeah, I'm going to build a better <laughs> race car, and he did. Um, he is since you know selling PayPal and you know making. I, he probably netted a couple hundred million dollars from that. Um, extraordinarily successful career, starting investing in tech companies. Um, the most prominent of which was uh, Facebook. Oh yeah, early investor, right? He was the first outside investor in Facebook, and this was actually detailed in the movie The Social Network. He, so um, he was in it, like someone represented him in the show, yeah, someone depicted him. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't think it was like you know with his blessing or anything. In fact, uh, if you watch The Social Network, the guy that plays him looks nothing like. It. Yeah. Anyway, he's just like generic VC guy, v- generic <laughs> rich guy writing a check. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Um, in addition to that, he uh, currently the chairman and founder of Palantir, which is currently private. And I want to I want to hold off on talking about them because it, it it bears uh, discussing in great deal later. Later, um, he's been an, an investor through his founders fund and a bunch of other companies, including Yelp, Big Think, Quora, LinkedIn. Um, he won TechCrunch's Venture Capitalist of the Year award in 2013. Um, he's currently a uh, one of ten part-time partners in venture capital seed accelerator Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's in on everything. Um, his philosophy, how he views business and everything, is put together in a book. I cannot recommend this book enough. And the reason I wanted to talk about Peter Thiel today was because um, I came to investing through just reading when I was like 15 years old, books about Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember specifically wandering in my local library in a a suburb of Cleveland, saw this book, How to Pick Stocks Like Warren Buffett, and it's got this old guy on the cover, and you're like, what the heck's going on? And um, first thing I learned was stay away from tech. Yeah. At all costs. Very different ideology than what Peter Thiel is interested in. Stay away from tech at all costs. Do not do it. It's unpredictable. Da-da-da-da-da. Um. As you age, though, you start to notice that that's not quite right. Mm. Um, and I couldn't put into words why I got that inkling. I didn't really buy any tech shares or whatever. But the value of what technology does and how you can invest in it successfully is is perfectly enunciated by Peter Thiel in this book, Zero to One. Um, so what are some of the main points? Right. So um, Zero to One, the book, is actually a compilation of what he taught in a Stanford uh, entrepreneur class. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, like this was. A so, class so he also is an adjunct professor. Yes, or yeah. a, a, which entrepreneur in residence or yes. something like that. Yeah. Um, but basically, the book zero to one is about how um, a business like Coca Cola, like but you know Buffett invested them and made ten billion dollars in it, invested in the ladies and everything. Um, it does not push our civilization and society forward. Mm-hmm. Makes lots of money, gobs of cash flow, does not push things forward. Um, a business like Microsoft, which has made billions of humans on this planet more productive with word processing and excel alone um helps our species and civilization move forward and zero to one is where that comes from nothing to something and he looks for businesses that do that and in so doing create monopolies he's Mm -hmm. all about monopolies and he thinks competition is dumb so any business that he invests in um and he cites google as a prime example of this 
is going to build a monopoly around being so disruptive and so good at what they do that they're not an evil monopoly where the government just protects them and it's just like this evil thing or whatever. They have a monopoly by being so good that nobody else can possibly compete with them. And a prime example is Google. Yeah, so businesses with extremely strong moats. Right. Competitive moats. Yeah. Um, and really quick, just before we wrap up, I wanted to highlight one more combination there. He is all about software as well. Um, the Palantir company that I cited. Is that what he's currently interested in right yes. now? Yes. Yeah. He's, uh, he's in, uh, invested in that open AI thing that Elon Musk is into about you know making sure that AI doesn't kill all of us, like in Terminator. Um, Palantir is basically the merging of humans and AI. So basically, they look for defense threats against um, IT infrastructure in the United States, and the t- United States Department of Defense is the major uh, major customer. Um, basically, they created software that identifies potential threats, and it whittles down all potential threats into down to... I'm making this up, but a couple hundred potential threats, and then a human analyst at Palantir's headquarters whittles it down from there because it's that last one percent of potential threats that a human kind of needs to get a feel for so it's kind of like guided analytics yes yeah he does not think that ai he thinks the future is very software based and it's not going to be about humans or uh humans being replaced by software but how we're going to work with it and become more effective working with it and again i mean obviously the defense industry is something that has always made use of technology but it's not where maybe technology's best and brightest have focused. Right. And, you know, this is just another example of that mindset changing quite a bit. Right. And he's already made billion dollars out of this thing. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. We're out of time. But, uh, Dylan, any final thoughts before we head out? Yeah, actually, one thing um, One thing I really like about Andreessen Horowitz, the firm, is their site, um, a16z.com. They have a lot of information and resources available for the average Joe. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, so they do regular podcasts. Um, they'll feature talks that Mark or Ben, you know, the, the namesakes, do. Um, and so just in addition to following them in the news or just like seeing how their firm operates with uh, companies they've seeded and then once they've gone public, you know, how do they handle that? Um, that's an interesting resource and just another great place to check yeah, out. Yeah, I know what I'm doing after this. Cool. Yeah. And also, uh, our writer, Sam Matera, interviewed Peter Thiel. I think last year. And so we have a couple articles that came from that. And so if listeners are interested in getting any of those articles, we can get a bunch of links together. Yeah. So. And, uh, and actually, on that note, if you want those articles or just want to give us a shout out, uh, feel free to hit us up at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, uh, that is industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Dylan Lewis, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.